as we get older, these problems become more prevalent, so much so that after the age of 50, there'll actually be more women having problems with their bladder than actually those who don't. And yet we don't hear about it at all. And that's just because of the shame. And it's not because it's not causing a severe impact to people's lives. We know that about a third of women will decide to take early retirement or redundancy because of a bladder problem, because they just can't carry out their job. Well, that's the voice of Professor Vic Kular. He is a consultant gynaecologist and a urogynaecologist specialising in pelvic floor dysfunction, vaginal prolapse, urinary incontinence and pelvic pain. All things that we could do with being clued up on. He is also a bit of a guru when it comes to navigating MCAS, that's mast cell activation syndrome and Erlos-Danlos syndrome, as we are about to discover. This is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle, and as I expect you know by now, I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And I can speak here, actually, as someone who's had personal experience of all the above conditions, either for myself or members of my immediate family. And so I'm especially keen to make sure we do have these conversations, which I know from my post bag here at Lazar Wellbeing are affecting just so many of us too. Well, Vic is the head of the Department of Urogynecology at St Mary's Hospital in London, which he established back in 2000, and he has private clinics in London too. He's an academic author and investigator into what's being called long COVID and the impact of COVID bladder problems. He also dedicates time to teaching as a professor of urogynecology at the Imperial College London, and I have no doubt he is about to pass on a lot of wisdom to us today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, Vic, I think as you could tell from my build-up, it's a huge pleasure to get to chat with you today. I know you are massively busy and thank you so much for your time. I do want to talk in detail about a number of bladder issues in particular, words like UTIs, cystitis, interstitial cystitis, incontinence. You know, there's so much we could talk about. But as a broad view, are there particular symptoms that indicate something isn't right in that area? No, thank you so much for having me on on your show today. I think one of the most important things, first of all, I suppose we ought to just say that these problems are very common. They're not spoken about very much mainly because of the taboo. It's probably the third most taboo subject for women. And so we don't really realise that as we get older, these problems 
become more prevalent, so much so that after the age of 50, there'll actually be more women having problems with their bladder than actually those who don't. And yet we don't hear about it at all. And that's just because of the shame. And it's not because it's not causing a severe impact to people's lives. We know that about a third of women will decide to take early retirement or redundancy because of a bladder problem, because they just can't carry out their job. So so it's huge impacts on people's lives. And it's really important that people should know that there is help out there. They don't need to suffer in silence. Well, that is very encouraging. Now, of course, you talk about the the magic number there, 50, as an age for women. That inevitably leads me onto the question about menopause and the impact of lowering oestrogen on our bladders. Absolutely. Oestrogen has not only an impact on the vagina, the urethra and the bladder, because they have a very similar origin. And So as soon as oestrogen drops, it's much more likely that people develop frequency. So that's really passing urine more than seven times in a day or getting up more than once at night. But, you know, with all of these problems, it's really how much it bothers somebody. So if it means that somebody's in a a meeting or at work and they're being constantly interrupted by their bladder, then it's, it's a problem regardless of how many times they go in a day. But certainly with estrogen going down, it's really frequency, urgency, and waking up at night seems to be the key problem, as well as obviously the coincidental increase in urine tract infections, which goes hand in hand with vaginal dryness. Yes, I I was going to ask you about that because they are so common. And as somebody who has suffered, and I've I've talked about this in the past for for years, simply being prescribed antibiotics, you know, even by consultant gynecologists, and without ever addressing the fact that it was my estrogen that was low that was causing this imbalance of change in pH in the vaginal area. And I had no idea that that was all linked to recurrent UTIs. I mean, do you find that something like HRT can be helpful for a lot of your patients? Yeah, certainly HRT can be helpful if somebody's worried about having the hormones actually in their body. Vaginal estrogens, which only act on the vagina and the blood, which is applied as a cream or a, as a pessary, can be a very safe option if somebody has a concern about the possibility of its action on the breast. So there, there are treatments out there which don't necessarily mean if somebody's worried about having basically systemic HRT, there's, yes. there, there are more local things which can be done. And, and we know that it's the real reason for these urine infections is that the bacteria, as with every part of our body, there are good bacteria which live in the vagina and they actually ultimately populate the bladder and keep all the bad ones out. The lack of estrogen means that we end up without those good bacteria and so just using vaginal estrogens or there are actually vaginal probiotics. Yes, I was going to ask you about probiotics and the role that they play either, I guess, topically, which I hadn't heard about, or, or dietary. But yes, talk about the, the topical probiotics. We can actually rub these bugs on, can we? Yeah, well, it, they come, it, it's, it's almost like a little, it comes as a little vaginal pessary, like a little tablet. It's used twice a week and there are, it's actually been shown to stop urine tract infections. And and yet wow. it won't have an effect elsewhere in the body. And you, these are available 
on the counter in pharmacies. Really? Mm. I remember back in the day reading about soaking tampons in yogurt. Would that be a similar kind of DIY remedy? Would you recommend that? Yeah, it, it certainly you can use even just applying it digitally. You don't necessarily need to use a tampon because it's it's just getting a small number of those good lactobacilli, mm. and then they go and do their job. So certainly, yes, that's that is a is is a good option. And what's the difference then between cystitis and and UTIs? What is triggering cystitis? Does that have a similar cause? Cystitis is interesting. It's there's a proportion of the population. It's probably we're talking about eighty percent who will get the burning, stinging feeling as though when they're passing urine, it feels like they're passing glass and the capacity of the bladder goes down. And that's because inside the bladder, the body has found that there's a a bug which shouldn't be there. The body then reacts, particularly E. coli. The body gets really angry with E. coli and then the bladder becomes very inflamed and you get these symptoms. Now, a urinary tract infection, they may not necessarily have the symptoms of cystitis. So there's another 20% of the population who then start to pass urine frequently, but they won't actually suffer from the burning or stinging as they pass urine. So certainly, as somebody can have frequency, suddenly notice that their bladders suddenly become weaker than it should be. Mm. And if a a urine sample is sent off, then you find that there's an infection there. So, and also people can feel a, a little bit off. You know, sometimes it can even be the symptoms which we might consider to be related to the menopause, such as having the hot sweats and things at night. If they start happening during the day, then the question is, is there an infection somewhere else? Is there an infection? How interesting. And that could be down to E. coli, so it would come back as an E. coli positive sample. Yeah, that, that seems to be a particularly aggressive one in terms of causing severe symptoms. Fascinating. What's the difference then between regular cystitis and interstitial cystitis? Cystitis, on average, we would say that a woman might have it one to two times a year. If it's more than that, so once we start getting into the realms of four times a year, then we're talking about recurrent cystitis. So it's, you know, I, I would actually argue that's in the realm where things do need to be dealt with and they need investigation. Interstitial cystitis is more what we, what we now call bladder pain syndrome. So it's it's where there is bladder becomes uncomfortable or painful as the bladder fills, and this leads to the person needing to pass urine more frequently. Classically, the person will actually wake up at night. They, they won't be able to sleep through the night at all, and they're woken by the bladder being painful or uncomfortable. And and not that they're being woken thinking, oh, if I don't get to the loo, I'm going to have an accident. So it's very, very much, it's a discomfort and pain in the bladder. And the key thing is that there isn't an infection present. Oh, really? So what causes it then? We think probably originally there may have been an infection. There's some good data to say that this whole process starts when somebody's had an infection for more than 10 days to two weeks. And the bladder then becomes just very inflamed and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of inflammation, but no infection, but it, it can be really miserable. But the, the, the good thing is there are, there, are, there are 
lots of treatments for it. So we repeatedly hear of patients saying, oh, you know, they've gone to see someone and they've been told there's nothing which can be done about it. We now subdivide these, the bladder pain, interstitial cystitis, into where people have embedded infections in the bladder wall, which isn't detected on, on the urine tests. And you can actually find them by looking inside or the bladder can be inflamed. And one of the treatments is actually something which is used for stomach ulcers. And it's been shown to treat over 50% of patients with bladder pain. And then there's another group where treatments where a liquid is put in the bladder and it then gets rid of the inflammation. But key thing is there's something which can be done about it. It's not just you have to live with this thing. Well, that is great because, you know, we are surrounded by images of different types of incontinence. You know, you you go into any supermarket or chemist and there's just this ever-increasing array of pads and, and, you know, talking about things like for normal flow as if any kind of urine loss or leak is normal. When we look at things like urge incontinence, stress overflow, etc., how do you feel about this kind of normalising of incontinence, particularly for women? I think it's one of the most awful things for a person to have incontinence because it affects their self-confidence. It stops them from doing things. And, you know, I think the key thing is that there is help out there. You don't need to end up just having a, a pad or a product because, you know, you'll see the patient who comes along, they're wearing dark clothing because it doesn't show if they have an accident. And then once they're treated, you can see not only a difference in what they're wearing, mm. also how they feel. You can see the confidence. So, you know, and often patients will be wearing pads, but the key thing is there is treatment and actually a whole range of treatment, simple treatment, which can then change their lives. Simple and and effective and Mm. and safe, obviously. Absolutely. What about the role of pelvic floor exercises? I have to say I'm sitting here squeezing as we speak because it always is a trigger whenever I'm talking about this to do that. Is is that something that you would obviously recommend going alongside this or is there not that much evidence to support it? No, pelvic floor exercises, 100%. There's very, very good evidence that it does work. The only difficulty is that over... 50% of women after having children, when they think they're contracting their pelvic floor, they're actually relaxing it. So What? Yeah, 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 no way. But it's just to do with the nerves and, you know, after childbirth. So it's really important when that, you know, and and it's, it's available to have a physiotherapist examine and make sure the right thing is being done because it, it, it's, you know, it's sock destroying. If you're, you know, you think you're yeah. doing one thing and, and naturally you're doing the opposite. No. Oh my gosh. I'm going to rush and make that appointment right away. So what's the link then with Erlos-Danos syndrome? This is something that my daughter Lily has talked about and, and we've had conversations about this privately. Erlos-Danos being hypermobility. Is there a connection there with what's going on? How come you as a urologist are also expert in Erlos-Danos? Erlos-Danlos, we used to think, was a very rare condition. We now think it's about 12% of the population. So, you know, let, let's say about one in eight. And it, and it certainly affects more, five times more women than men. And whenever we see something which is quite common, 
The next question is why? You know, what's the benefit behind it? Because it must have a benefit. And obviously, you do see a lot of sports personalities. They'll all have Ernest Danlos because it it does allow the person to do things. You know, if you're a tennis player, to to do shots which you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But and also, for example, ballerinas will have Ernest Danlos. Gymnasts will have Ernest Danlos. But the key question about it is what does it actually benefit the person? And, and what we're now thinking is that it allows the person to fight bacterial infections more effectively. Really? Yeah. So they've got a really good immune system. And certainly I noticed when we were going into COVID, I was talking to my patients and so many of them were saying, I'm fine. I'm not, I haven't had any problems. And I was thinking, this is really strange. And we have a, a worldwide group where we were discussing things online. And you know, in the, in the US, people were noticing this as well, that you know they didn't end up hospitalized. They weren't having the sort of problems which everyone else was having with COVID. But what we've subsequently found is that people with EDS actually have a very strong immune system. So it's quite aggressive. It, you know, it makes sense. Before 1930, before antibiotics, over half the population would have died of things like bacterial infections. And people with EDS have a strong immune system, which counters that. But with everything good, there's always a downside. And what we think is that with EDS, because one of the key things which patients will often talk about is that they get joint or muscle pains and fatigue. And that's because their immune system is so strong that it goes and just, you know, it's always on the warpath trying to fight things. And, and that can make it quite difficult for, you know, for example, if you go and see a doctor, that the person may not necessarily have the same signs. So from my perspective, a lot of my, my joint hypermobile patients have bladders which are overactive. They may have low levels of infection, which really cause the bladder to be very irritated. And yet when we do tests, which are the standard tests for 88% of the population, we don't see anything but we have to use a different cutoff to actually find the underlying problem. That is very interesting. And and is is it to do with the hypermobility of the organs inside as well? I know yeah. that a lot of people with EEDS have digestive and gut issues, for example, because they have hypermobile guts. I, I think we're very much thinking that it's to do with the bacteria in the gut. The body sees those, and if particularly if the if the balance isn't right, then the the bowel becomes inflamed and that it just doesn't contract properly. So we, we see the gut problems, we see bladder problems, but what's interesting is that it can be corrected and, and, and we're getting more and more in a position where we're actually starting to correct these things and people can then go and live their normal lives. Is that through surgery or through medication? It's, it's through medication, it's through diet. I remember talking to one of the teachers at the Royal Ballet School and she mentioned, she said, look, you know, we have to be really careful about the diets we give our ballerinas. If you give them the wrong food, they'll all get ill. And of course, what she was talking about was joint hypermobility and food. So so there's a close link, you know, and, and it's all about that well-being, you know, eating, you know, in, in a way we, we all have to find out what is it that our body needs. And this is one of those key, key links, joint hypermobility with the food that we eat 
and the bacteria which are in the gut. Fascinating. And I, I do want to come on and talk about things like histamine in the second half of the show. But looking specifically here at foods, would we be looking at low histamine foods for Erlostanos or something else? Yeah, for about half of women, it is having low histamine foods. So these are foods. One of the problems is that we have started storing foods for longer than would, you know, so we're not having things very much in the way of fresh food. And therefore, we end up having bacterial activity on protein-rich foods. So we're talking about things like chilled meals. And the problem with that is that the bacteria then degrade the protein. So for example, let's say fish, and then that increases the histamine in the food. That doesn't happen in freezers. So frozen food, it doesn't happen in, but with chilled meals, it does. So one of the ways one can reduce histamine is having food which is fresher and not having it stored in the fridge for a long time. But on the other hand, the other 50% of people of women with joint hypermobility have increased numbers of mast cells. Um, for example, we see that a lot in the bladder. And they react to things like citrus. I suppose the classic is actually the sulfites in, in wine. So It's the classic thing where somebody says, if I have a glass of Prosecco, oh, I feel terrible. It goes to my head really quickly. Whereas they won't see that effect if they have, let's say, a spirit like gin and tonic. So that's that's a really good way of being able to see if that's a problem. And often people get very flushed and red with it because as these cells activate, the histamine comes out and they go, go bright red and don't feel very well. And that's often a key question that I'll ask because it's so clear cut. That's so fascinating. I love that, that we can self-diagnose with either a glass of wine or a gin and tonic. Well, stay right there, because I know there's so much I want to learn from you, including the link between histamine, MCAS and so many other issues. So please don't go away. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, it's so fascinating to explore this whole area of not only bladder problems and hypermobility, but histamine intolerance. Let's talk, Vic, a little bit more about your work with histamine. And you mentioned just before the link with mast cells. Mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS, is something that we're beginning to hear a little bit more about. Can you talk us through what mast cells are? And I guess, did they become better known during COVID? Yes. So so mast cells are essentially, well, all of our immune cells come from our bone marrow. And what the body does with, they're, they're really the first responders. They're the, they're the cells which get out there and are activated, for example, if you have a mosquito bite or a wasp or bee sting. It's the thing which causes the redness, the pain, the swelling. And what the body does is these cells are wandering through our bloodstream. If they find something of interest, bacterial infection or let's say a bite, they will go into the tissues, set up shop, and then they will proceed to live there for between nine months to a year. Wow. So the idea is that if, let's say that we were having, somebody was getting a cut on their forefinger because they were doing a particular job, a cut can lead to infection. It's a, it's a breach through the skin. But by the body, having those cells living in the, around the area where the cut's occurring, it means the body's better prepared if there's an infection. So, so there's this thing about these cells aren't just everywhere. They're actually in certain places wherever there's been a problem. And the key thing is that they're activated by pressure, movement, certain foods, as we said, and also the innate immune system also gets very activated by things like stress. We've got to think it away. What is stress? Stress is actually where it would inherently have been where we were about to be attacked and potentially injured by an animal or something. So there's this close link between stress and our immune system because you need your immune system ready for those injuries from the attack by, you know, I don't know, a wild animal or something. But, yeah, being but, bitten by a tiger or something. Exactly. And actually, it's something which is just carried through even now. So now we have the stress, which is nothing to do with physical injury, but our body reacts exactly the same way and it becomes very inflamed. And, and, I, and I'm sure all of us will have felt that when we've been under a lot of stress and then they just be, we just don't feel well because our immune system you know, goes crazy. So having a good immune system is, is good and powerful, but actually you can have too much of a good thing. You can, your immune system can go into hyperdrive and make us feel worse. Exactly. And, and, and also, you know, nowadays, you know, with modern treatments, things like antibiotics, you know, that immune system isn't as useful as it once was. You know, the, the key thing is to know how to treat it or control it. 
you know, I, I remember one one patient, she, you know, she was doing her exams. There were some professional exams, and each time she had them, she became really unwell. Actually, ended up admitting her to hospital. And each time she'd have an infection, we'd have to give her intravenous antibiotics. And each time she'd say, "Oh, can you write a, a letter to my examination board to say I've been admitted to hospital? I can't do the examination." And after the third time, we realised that it was the stress of the examination which was then making her ill, and then she was getting the infection. She actually has had mast cell activation. And we gave her treatment to suppress the mast cells, and she did her exam without any problems. So it's that close wow. link. So you know, sometimes people go, "Oh, it's all in in the mind," but actually, it's really in the body, and you know that's really important. And I can give you a really good example of that really being in the body because when we first met, you picked up on the tiny, tiny dark red dots on my arm as being mast cells, showing that I'd been exposed to COVID despite having no symptoms and not being aware of that. So is that very common? You know, can we all be examining our bodies to see if we've got these little tiny bright red dots, which are clusters of mast cells, to check our exposure to things, I guess, like stress or, or COVID? I, I must admit, with COVID, the first person I saw was in April 2020. She had, in retrospect, had been exposed to COVID in, in January. And then had become severely unwell. She she had two children. She'd been so unwell, she just had to stay in bed. She couldn't get out of bed at all. She had pain all over her body. And when I finally saw her, she was covered in these, they're called cherry angiomas, which are like, they look bright red little dots. And obviously, later on, as we saw more and more people with COVID, it's been one of those signs to do with COVID infection. And when it goes out of control, then we sort of see patients with long COVID. And we've even biopsied these and found lots and lots of mast cells in these in these red dots. But it's where the immune system has successfully fought off the the virus, but then it almost goes into overdrive. It, it it's waiting for the next infection with COVID. That is fascinating. So is is long COVID then linked to MCAS? Is there a connection there? With, with mast cells and people who are perhaps more prone to it? Could it be long COVID in itself? Could it be a sign that it's actually mast cell activation syndrome? Yes, certainly we have looked at groups of patients with long COVID and in particular with COVID bladder, which is where a person has this constant feeling they want to pass urine. It's a pressure that they need to go. And when we look inside the bladders, we've actually found lots and lots of mast cells way above the normal upper limit of normal, it's almost three to four times higher, which we've never, never seen before. So certainly when we've looked at bladders, that's what we find. And it's interesting when we treat the bladder, it's not just the bladder which gets better. It's also the whole person, you know, their fatigue goes, they really improve. How would you treat long or COVID bladder? I mean, I've never heard that term before. How, how would you treat COVID bladder? There are two key bits to this. It's one is the inflammatory side, which has just been triggered, presumably by the virus. But there is also often a coincidental bacterial infection, which just hasn't resolved. And in particular, there's a bug called Klebsiella, which before COVID, it was about 4% of the population who had urine infections would have it. And we found it went up to about 60% after COVID. And it, it's a 
it, and so it's an unusual bug which suddenly appears and in some way there's some kind of change which occurred in the immune system to allow this this bug to become more prevalent and the problem is that once the bacterial infection's there there's no reason for the immune system to stop working because its its job is to protect and it can see this bug and it thinks i've got to keep the bug under control but in doing so it carries on the inflammation and the person carries on being fatigued and not feeling very well the the the, the mainstay of treatment and there is a paper by somebody called Glynn from 2021 where they gave ratadine which is just a standard antihistamine which is taken over the counter and formotidine which is something used for stomach ulcers and using that combination they found that 83% of patients their long covid symptoms resolved within a month that's phenomenal and is that basically all symptoms or is that just looking specifically at the bladder oh no this was all symptoms what they did was they had a questionnaire which asked for all the different symptoms related to long covid and then they looked as to whether all the symptoms resolved so you know considering it's something which you can buy over the counter yes it's very cheap you know it, it it's something which and i know a number of long covid clinics have started to to use this treatment really so if somebody is suffering if they're listening to this having a conversation with their gp or by the sounds of it even the pharmacist and and getting hold of loratadine and famotidine could actually be a safe easy way of seeing whether that's helpful absolutely i think i think that's you know a very very sensible way forward but the key thing is it does take about a month it's it there's something odd about it in the first two weeks you don't notice very much and often patients will say to me i'm not sure if it's my imagination i think i'm getting better but by a month you know you are and often people have to carry on with that treatment for about you know 3 3 months sometimes 6 months because we're dealing with cells which are in the body in the tissues and they have a certain life expectancy and we're waiting for them almost to sort of retire and that sometimes takes a bit of time Absolutely fascinating. There is just so much out there. I know that looking at the role of antihistamines for example with COVID and long COVID, you know, is is one of the things that you and your team work with. Have you had much success in having papers published and much interest or or are people sort of looking at other areas? Is is this something that, you know, mast cells and histamine the connection there? is being slightly overlooked i get a sense of that possibly yeah i i i think you're right i think one of the difficulties is that medicine's always based on definitions and even at the moment there's a lot of scientific discussion about what's the definition of long covid and i think that's holding things up because when you submit a paper people then go well but what's long covid you haven't defined it and I think that's hopefully that's something which is now going to be resolved and and then we can get more papers into the literature which then means treatments for patients. Mm, absolutely. One of the things I love about your work is that you have a real focus and I sense a heart for women's healthcare in particular. And for example, you worked on a, a drug that was shown to have real benefit for women with bladder problems. but it was only really picked up in the academic journals when it also showed promise for prostate i mean what on earth is that all about yeah i you know i i the 
drug in particular was myrobegron. It was for overactive bladder. So that's where people have to rush to pass urine and they, they, you know, it's often the key in the door. So somebody comes home, they put the key in the door and they suddenly feel desperate to go to the loo and they, they sometimes may not make it. So, and what's always interesting when we publish that there does seem to be a bias towards illnesses related to men rather than women. And I, I really do think that's something which really needs correcting. And because I think so often women suffer in silence and they, and they really do need proper treatment to get on and enjoy their lives. Mm. Absolutely. I know that you also campaigned for women. You were involved with reviewing the polypropylene pelvic mesh scandal. There was a very interesting paper written on that. What did you find there? What I think we've missed in a way is that anything which is implanted in the body always has to be done in the basically the most sterile way possible. And I think what happened with that mesh study, this, this is my reading of it, because we found abnormal bacteria associated with where these meshes were rejected. That wasn't emphasized where companies were trying to sell these things to people. And so people were then, you know, it's almost like having a car and nobody tells you how to drive. There's a lot more behind it. And I think that was part of the reason why this all happened. And you still see patients with vaginal prolapse. How, how would you be treating that now? Yeah, vaginal prolapse. So that's very much a feeling that there's a bulge below, almost a heaviness in the vagina. It's particularly when somebody gets up and it gets worse as the day goes on. It can affect the bladder in terms of people can pass urine more frequently or not have so much capacity, or it can affect the bowel. So opening bowels, things just don't seem to work as well, don't seem to empty properly. The treatments for that can be Again, pelvic floor exercises with a physiotherapist. There are pessaries which can be used, which can, which are inserted and they keep the prolapse supported for six months at a time and then the pessaries changed. Or obviously there are other things like operations. But the key thing is there's a wide range of things which can be done for prolapse. And it's not just, oh, you then have to have an operation or just up with it. it there are these other options and, and they are very effective. It's so encouraging to talk to you and to just, I think we've only just scratched the surface on so much. Where would you suggest women go to for further information? Because I know a lot of the topics that we've touched on here, I can imagine if you talk to, you know, our poor overworked GPs, you know, you may well draw a blank because a lot of what you're talking about is seemingly so new are there any organisations or resources that you could signpost us to? Yeah, there's the Bowel and Bladder Foundation, and they have links to all the different organisations relating to this. There are also links with the International Urogynecology Association and the International Continent Society as well. So all of these organisations have links for patients, which will take them on to more information and also where to get help. Yes, yeah, really importantly. Thank you so much, Vic. I know that you are one of the busiest people on the planet and I'm very, very grateful that you've given us so much of your time here today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Liz. It's been a real pleasure for me. 
Well, what a privilege to get to dive into one of the greatest medical brains, Professor Vikram Kular there. A big thank you again for your time. Well, do you know, after our chat, Vic mentioned a shocking study showing that it takes a woman on average 12 years of feeling symptoms here before broaching the subject with their family doctor and actually two years before deciding to book the appointment to talk about it, often then to simply have their symptoms dismissed by a GP saying, well, nothing can be done. So sad and so shocking, but something that hopefully such well-being warriors as Mr Kular and podcasts like this one can help to put right. Well, for more on long COVID, do listen back to our recent episode with Lauren Windus. She is a nutritionist and naturopath, and we talked about the potential crossover of symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID. Also, take a listen to an early interview that I did with the leading light, Dr. Tina Pears. This goes way back, and she was very prescient in talking about COVID, histamine, antihistamines, ivermectin, and long COVID. So, do take Take a listen. And if you prefer, you can listen to your podcast ad free now, by the way. We've got you covered here. You can subscribe to the Lizar Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And the good stuff doesn't end there because once you're a subscriber, you also get 24 hour early access to those ad free episodes as well. So until the next time, go very well indeed. Bye bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.